Hi, my name is Adri, and the Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus 16, 14, 16. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells them in the midst of their uncleanliness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 3:21 through 24. But now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 10, verses 43 through 45. But it shall not be so among you, but... Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word today. Prepare our hearts. Give us hearts that are soft, that are ready, that will be good soil, that we would hear your word and not just hear it, but that it would take root in us and it would bear fruit to the glory of your name, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, sin is a word that has fallen out of fashion. Sin is a word that is difficult to say to someone. In fact, if you were to talk to a coworker or a friend or maybe a professor at college or whatever, uh, sin would be explained away as really just a social construct. And so sin is just an artificial social construct. It's a fancy way of saying that one person doesn't conform to the norms of the group. And so people will say, well, just sociologically, a sin is a way of saying taboo, or this is the breaking point, you, you have violated the norms of the group, but there's no moral weight to it, there's no assigning of good or evil, it's just, oh, you've just failed to conform to this group, and therefore we call that sin. And, and, and actually, when you think about it this way, uh, it actually undoes the whole way that the Bible understands sin. So sin... It, in a simplistic way, and the scriptures 
roughly means to miss the mark, to come short of the mark. Well, if there is no mark, then there is no missing it, you know? It's like that leadership saying, if you have no goals, you will surely meet all of them, you know? Uh, Your everything you do is a success because, well, that's exactly what I intended to do. And you've redefined all of your efforts because you said, well, that was the target I was aiming at. But I wonder if this would apply, this same logic would work if we uh, carried this on into the medical community. And what would happen if you went to the doctor with a broken bone and the doctor says, well, I wouldn't say it's broken. It's certainly different from a lot of other people, but who am I to judge? Now, our dear friend Joey Jimenez, a couple of weeks ago, had the tragic uh, occurrence of someone running into him while he was on his bicycle, and he had to uh, have some, some surgery there for his shoulder, and many of you know this, and he sent me a picture of the x-rays, and it shows something out of alignment. In fact, one of his shoulders was drooping like this, and they said, we can't just let this heal. We got to set this with a, you know, some kind of titanium whatever, you know, bolt. And uh, what if the doctors had said, you know, Joey... I see that your right shoulder is drooping, but that could be a thing. Like, that could be you. I mean, I, I don't want to sound harsh. I mean, just because we, I stand like this doesn't mean you should. I mean, I mean, maybe it'll catch on. Someone stands like this. The other person stands like this. I mean, I don't know. It could be a thing. I don't want to judge. And we, nobody would say that. Because to say that something needs to be done or something is not right implies that there is a standard. It implies that there is a norm. And so I want us this morning as we deal with the topic of sin in the the book of Romans, I want us to work with an extended metaphor of sickness. An extended metaphor of sickness and disease. So we're week three here in our series in the book of Romans and Just to recap a little bit, we said in the backdrop of this letter, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. He'd never been there when he he hadn't been there when he wrote the letter. The church in Rome probably began with a group of Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus. Later, Gentiles were added. But then sometime in the AD 40s or early 50s, sometime around there, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And part of this was because there were, there were riots that were happening in Rome, um, over the, probably over the issue of whether Jesus was or was not the Messiah. And so the Emperor Claudius says, all of, you, all of the Jews get out of Rome. And so then the church in Rome is left with just Gentile believers, non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And then another emperor comes to power, an emperor named Nero, and he lifts the ban. He says, no more ban on Jews. The Jews may return. And so now Jews are returning to Rome and specifically to this church in Rome. And so it's very likely that one of the things that was going on is that as Jewish followers of Jesus returned to this little church in Rome, they were kind of strutting a little bit. Like, uh-huh, <clears throat> Let's me, let me take my rightful place. We deserve this. We're special. We have a kind of superiority here. On the other hand, there could have been another sort of approach from Gentiles asserting their own kind of superiority, saying, oh, you Jews, you've always been messing this whole thing up. Clearly now the new movement of Jesus, the, the Jesus faith is about us and the Gentiles. So why don't you guys take a back seat? You've had your day. I am saying this because 
at the beating heart of the book of Romans is the gospel of reconciliation. And the gospel of reconciliation, yes, between humanity and God, but also between Jews and Gentiles. And I want to say this to you because somehow in America we've come to believe that racial reconciliation issues are marginal subjects. And so when a pastor addresses it, people will say to that pastor, brother, just stick to the gospel. And I want to say to you right, from the, right off the bat that Paul can hardly preach the gospel without also preaching racial reconciliation. Paul cannot talk about the good news of Jesus as king without talking about, without talking about classism, racism, and, and, and sexism being torn down. This is what Paul sees the gospel as doing, as reshaping any way of asserting superiority. So I, I, I hope you're not tired of it, because to be tired of it is to become tired of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is remaking the world. And we see this as the very backdrop. So Romans 1, Paul says the good news, but then he kind of says the bad news. And Pastor Jason did a great job of this last week, pointing out that when Paul's talking about the Gentiles or the general human sin, he uses the third person. He says they. They gave themselves over. They had darkened minds. They, and it's almost as if Paul is standing in the shoes of a first century Jew and saying, I know what you guys say about Gentiles, so I'll just say it. Yes, it's true. They were given to depraved ways. They were idolaters. Yes, yes, yes. But then in Romans 2, he turns over and says to them, he says, and let me tell you about you. You did this. You did this. You did this. You did this. And all of a sudden, they're saying, excuse me, Paul. We're not like that. You can't lump us in with all of this. And as Jason said last week, it makes the Pharisee in all of us squirm. And so the question right off the bat in chapter 3 then is, well, hang on, Paul. Isn't there any advantage to being a Jew? Isn't there any advantage to having been from the family of Abraham? And Paul addresses it right away. Romans 3, verse 1, if you got your Bible, turn with me. By the way, this is not the kind of series that would be easy for you to just sort of sit by and listen to. This is the kind of series where I really want you to open up your Bibles, whether it's digital or paper, and underline, follow along, take notes in a journal. And no, please, please, let's do that together and let the Word of God work in us. So in verse 1, so what's the advantage of being a Jew, or what's the benefit of circumcision? Plenty in every way. And he says, first of all, Jews were trusted with God's revelation. He's saying, look, you were the ones entrusted with carrying blessing to the nations. In fact, we need to stop for a moment and say this. Sometimes we, we slander the Old Testament and, and by uh, implication slander Judaism by imagining it to be a religion of legalism. Some of you have heard this, oh, all, the whole Jewish religion was legalism, and the whole Old Testament, God was a legalist, and then God changed his mind, you know? No, listen, let's, let's pause for a moment. Genesis 1, God makes the world, calls it good, sets everything up in its place. Genesis 3, as humans rebel, everything comes out of order, right? Humans and God, the, 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 the God-human relationship is out of order. They're hiding from God. The male-female relationship is out of order. They're blaming each other. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, they're blaming each other. Mur one murders the other. Genesis 9, the ground itself is no longer at peace with humanity. The ground breaks and gives way, and there's floodwaters that rise. Genesis 11, societies break. The whole setup of the story is the world coming apart, right? And then Genesis 12, 
God calls Abraham. And we did this whole series last fall on the life of Abraham. When God calls Abraham, on what basis does God call him? Just because. In fact, the very next chapter of Romans, Paul will make this case. God called Abraham by grace. He just chose him by grace. And then because he had called Abraham by grace, when Abraham's descendants were stuck as slaves in Egypt, God saved them. Why? Because they were already his people. Has there been a law given yet? No. Called by grace, saved by grace. Then they exit Egypt, and then on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, they are given the Ten Commandments. They're given the law. So the law for, a, for, for the Jews was not, oh, the way I've got to believe, behave so that God will like me. Nobody thought like that. The law for the Jews was confirmation that they were special. The law was confirmation that they were, it was like, wow, God gave us his revelation. That just proves it. He chose Abraham. He saved us from Egypt. And now he gave us the law. We're special. And so Paul says, that's true. You were trusted with God's revelations. But then he says, but that's not enough. And so when he gets down to verse 9, he says, so what are we saying? Are we better off? Are we? Paul lumps himself up with this because he's Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a Jew. He says, not at all. We have already stated the charge. Both Jews and Greeks are all under the power of sin. And as it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament here from the book of Psalms. He says, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who looks for God. They all turned away. They have become worthless together. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Like the old hymn, no, not one. Not even one is righteous. No one is righteous. Sin has infected everyone. If we're going to work with this as the metaphor of a disease and a sickness, Paul lays the charge. He says, here it is. Sin has infected everyone. Nobody is exempt. Now let's pause for a moment. Sometimes Paul's harsh words to his own Jewish brothers and sisters have been misconstrued into that demonic movement of anti-Semitism. And so we need to know, why is Paul being so harsh? Why is he driving home his point to say to his fellow Jews that even you are infected? Here's why. Does anybody like zombie movies? I hate them. I can't stand them. I don't watch zombie TV shows, zombie movies. I, I, don't, I know there's one called The Walking Dead. I've never seen it. It's, it's, just, it's not my thing. I have a very weak stomach. But I think a zombie movie might be our little uh, tip here into, into understanding something, okay? So, Tim, because you were so enthusiastic about zombie movies, let's pretend, give, give a little wave, Tim, right there. Okay. So, Tim, you are the only one who is not a zombie. Okay? Let's pretend. Here's the situation. There's a whole, the, 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 the infection has spread. The whole country is full of zombies except for Tim. Tim is pure. And not only is Tim pure, he has somehow devised the cure. He is carrying the cure. And we're like, okay, Tim, you are the hope of the world. The hope of the world rests with Tim. And then, then we say, Tim, we need to bring the cure to the most infected, most depraved city. I don't know. Take your pick. 
New York. Let's go to New York, Tim. Okay, we can just have some fun. We're in Colorado here, right? And, and so Tim says, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go. And so Tim, in the classic fashion, he loads up in this white unmarked van. I don't know why, but it's got the cure in it, in the back of the white unmarked van. And Tim's driving across country. The, the, the soundtrack is raging, and all around he sees the devastation of zombie land. And he finally arrives in the center, and he knows, I am carrying the cure. And people are clamoring to the side of the van, ready to find Tim. And Tim turns back. Only something funny happens as soon as Tim appears at the window. They notice his face is sagging and drooping. And Tim goes, <laughs> And we realize Tim's a zombie too! Oh dear God! This is basically the story of the Old Testament. Is <laughs> the whole world is infected with sin and it's created deadness and all the world is the walking dead, and God said to Abraham, you are going to carry the cure. Remember what he says to Abraham. He says, through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. The prophets knew it. They said Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They knew it when they talked about this, when the songwriters wrote about Zion. They said, oh, Zion is going to be this beautiful place, and all the nations will come and worship Yahweh here. They knew it. They were the carriers of the cure, but they themselves were infected. And this is the, Paul is not driving home this point because he hates Jews or he wants us to think less of Jews. Paul's driving home this point because he wants us to know how serious the situation is. It's one thing to say sin has gotten into the Gentile world. Jews are like, tell me something I didn't know. And he says, no, it's worse than that. The infection is in you. <gasps> We're all zombies. Thriller. Thriller. Anyway, okay. So, dun, 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 dun. okay. Um, and then the Jews would have objected and they said, no, but, but, but Paul, we have the law. Remember, the law confirms our specialness. The law confirms our chosenness. We've got the law. And Paul says, do you think the law is a cure? The law is not a cure. The law is not a cure. The law can only confirm the diagnosis. And so the Jews in Paul's day, but Paul, we've got the law. He's like, that's true, and that is special, but that can only confirm the diagnosis. He says it here in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law in order to shut every mouth and make it so that the whole world has to answer to God. It follows then that no human being will be treated as righteous in his presence by doing what the law says because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The best the law can do is to say, yeah, you're sick. <laughs> yep. It's not the cure. It's like the thermometer that tells you you have a fever. It says, yeah, you got it too. Uh-oh. And so then he gets to Romans 3, 23, and he says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The law reveals God's glory. Remember, we've said this, the law is not just a bunch of rules. It's the revelation of who God is. It shows us God is not like an adulterer. God is not like a murderer. God is not, the law reveals the glory of God and reveals what we're supposed to be like as image bearers who reflect his glory, except that now the law 
shows us how not like God we are, how far we've fallen. It holds up the standard and says, yeah, that bone is broken. Yes, you are running a temperature. Yes, you are sick. So I want to stop here and talk for a moment about three tendencies that Romans 3 confronts in us. Three tendencies that Romans 3 confronts in all of us. What do we do with this? Or rather, what is this text trying to do to us? You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we say, what do I get out of it? But really, there's another way of reading the Bible where it's the Bible getting stuff out of you, flushing things out of you. So so there's three tendencies that Romans 3 confronts. The first is the tendency to misdiagnose ourselves. Pastor Jason talked about this last week where he said, we look at other people and we always assume the worst. Oh, well, I know why they did did that. It's because they're lazy, they're rude, they're angry. But when we do it, we always believe the best. We're like, well, no, I just had a stressful day. I don't... I don't, I don't have problems. I'm not mean-spirited. I'm not hateful. I don't have anger issues. I'm just under a lot of stress. But when someone else does it, uh-oh, it's the devil. So we have this tendency to misdiagnose ourselves. A couple weeks ago, uh, I came down with a, a bit of a sore throat and a low-grade fever, and I thought, oh, the kids have been sick. I just need to you know, rest and chill out. But then there were a couple of work things. This is about 10, 12 days ago that I couldn't quite get out of. I had to go teach at New Life Next. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'll just go, I'll just load up on some, on some Advil and I'll go teach and I won't talk to anyone. I won't shake any new person's hands. You know, I even told everyone, I was like, I'm not feeling well, so I'll stay away. But I went and, you know, did my, my, my talk because I thought I'm not that sick. And then I got home on Wednesday of the previous week, not last week, but the week before, I started feeling worse and then worse and I was like, I'm, one of these mornings, I'm going to wake up and be fine, right? It's no big deal. It's just a cold with a little fever thing. Well, it wouldn't go away. And then I'd get better. I'd have no fever. But then in the evening, I get, so a week ago, I was like, you know, I should probably go see the doctor. So a week ago, I went and saw the doctor. And she's like, I hope you've cleared your schedule. I said, why? What's going on? You know? And she's like, well, you're, you're, you seem to be in good spirits considering you have walking pneumonia. And uh, I said, what's walking anymore? Is that like, well, the walking dead, you know, zombies are on my mind. And she said, no, it's not like that. It's basically this very low uh, grade kind of bacteria thing, right? So she said, you need this antibiotic. And at that point in, in the week, I already didn't have a fever. You're panicked now. You're like, oh my gosh, what, is, what are you doing here? I haven't had a fever for a week. I finished my course of antibiotics. I, I'm doing great. Uh, a little bit out of breath, but I'm doing great. And I realized in the doctor's office, I thought, wow, I totally misdiagnosed myself. I totally missed it. I thought that I was, I was just going to push through. And this is what we do. We think that our problem is just this, 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 and this. When God's saying, look a little deeper, would you? Look a layer down. What if there's an infection that is not going to come out except for Jesus? What if it's not just circumstantial? And so the second tendency that Romans 3 confronts is the tendency to think that our sin doesn't affect anyone else. Now, you guys, I want to say some things that I I think are going to make some of you uncomfortable today. We believe that our sin is just a Jesus and me thing. 
And so, so long as I repent and God forgives me, then it doesn't matter. It's just in my heart. And if I haven't committed this sin, then I'm not actually responsible. But listen to Romans 3, verse 13. Their throat is a grave that has been opened. They are deceitful with their tongues. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Their destruction and misery are in their ways. They don't know the way of peace. Now, hang on for a minute. He's talking about the people that are perpetrating the acts. But there's people on the other side of that that are the victims of those acts. Whose blood is being shed? Whose name is being cursed? Who's become the victim of violence? We believe in American evangelicalism that sin is a personal thing. And if Jesus can just forgive me of my sin, I have no culpability in the sin in the world. That's all made-up stuff. That's all liberal agenda stuff. But when you look squarely in the face of Scripture, you'll see that the prophets in the Old Testament, they treat sin as communal and structural. If you're writing down notes, they treat sin as communal and structural. When the prophets rebuke a nation for its sin, they don't just rebuke the individuals that sinned. They don't just say, yeah, yeah, you, Hezekiah, you, and you, and you, you guys are not, not he says, the woe to you. When you read some of the woes, it's a woe to an entire community. It's a woe to an entire nation. Why? Because a whole community is complicit in its sin. Sin is not a private matter. It has communal ramifications. And then when the prophets do name names, guess who they name? Who they, name? they name people in power. They name kings. They name structural powers. Why? Because sin is not just communal, it's structural. It becomes embedded in systems that actually structurally oppress and exploit the poor. Now, I know we don't like to hear this, But I just want you to wrestle with this for a moment this morning. Many of us look across the landscape in America at racial tensions and we say, well, that's not me. I'm not a racist. I never did anything. And I believe that. But what we fail to account for is all of the ways that we are implicated in it. All of the ways that the sins of our community connect us in the story. The sin of our embeddedness in the structure carries us. People say sometimes, well, Glenn, you know, I mean, hey, listen, slavery was a long time ago. That, that is not what we're living through today. Do you not realize the generational impact of that sin? Do you not realize the, the, the embedded ways that structures continue to reinforce this? What about when we redlined neighborhoods and said that African Americans couldn't live in certain zones and districts? What about when we drew up the way that representatives were elected so that a disproportionate amount of non-African Americans or white Americans were able to be represented than, than minorities? What about when we did all those things? I was reading a book by a pastor friend this week who's passionate about planting multi-ethnic churches. And he told a story of his mother growing up in the South being the first uh, um, African-American girl to attend this all-white school. And 
She used to pl- she played the violin as a child, and her music teacher at the school said, "Oh, honey, there's no need for you to keep going with the violin. People like you just become maids." So I don't want you to tell me that you have nothing to do with this. We have everything to do with this because we're part of this. This is our national story. This is our communal story. And when we think of sin, we can't think of sin as if we're all free-standing, free-acting individuals, and we imagine that everybody starts from the same square one. Everybody does not start from the same square one. And some of you know this. You grew up in broken homes. You grew up as the victims of abuse. You grew up in neighborhoods that were rotten and, and dysfunctional. You grew, you grew up around drugs. You grew up... We, we did not all start from the same square one. We didn't. And Paul has no illusions of that. He wants us to know that the infection of sin has disordered the world. And so everything is off kilter. Everything is in disarray. And the gospel confronts, if we won't name our sins, we can't find our cure. We can't let Jesus be the cure to the sins we won't name. We can't let Jesus bring healing and reconciliation in relationships that we won't own and be part of. And so Romans 3 confronts that. It says you're not allowed to imagine sin as a private thing. We're all complicit in this. I love the message paraphrase in Romans 3.20. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. Oh my goodness, what? You mean the, the privilege of knowing God doesn't automatically put us right just because we had the law, we had knowledge? No. In fact, it forces us to face our complicity. What did we do to bring healing? What did we do when we were confronted with other people's pain? Did we say, oh, that's not really true, or that's not really me? Or do we listen? Do we weep? Do we cry? Do we let the Holy Spirit convict us to where we say, I'm so sorry. All of us are affected. It's touched us all. And so then the third tendency is the tendency to use some kind of law to save us. So the function of the law, it had many functions, but again, one of the functions was to mark them out as being special. Hey, we are the people who have the law. And so as as long as we can obey it, it's going to show that we are not like other people, right? Now, what versions of that do you have? Oh, well, I went to a Christian school. Oh, well, I grew up in the right neighborhood. Well, I, my parents never divorced. I had this, 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 this. I never did drugs. What's the law that you use as a badge of honor that you think you can hide behind? Man, I... I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but that is what Paul's trying to do to us. He's trying to say the realization of the depths of sin should make you squirm and say, oh God, who can save us? Oh God, who can save I've got no badge that I can hide behind. There is no shield that I can duck behind and say, but the law, but my this, but my that, but my grades, but my family, but my job, but my income, but my health, but my squeaky clean record, but my... Paul says, yeah, put it down. It's not going to help. There is no law that can justify us. So who can save us? Who can save us? 
Who can carry the cure if the whole world is infected with the walking dead? Who can carry the cure? Romans 3 verse 21. But now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. Paul's very careful to say it's been revealed apart from the law, but it doesn't it doesn't fly in the face of it. It's confirmed by the law and the prophets. God's right, because he doesn't want people to, to, to say that God used to be like this and now God is like this. He's careful to not say that. God's righteousness comes through, here it is, you guys, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There is no distinction. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, Jesus, Jesus did what Abraham's family could never do. This is why the gospel, according to Matthew, opens with a genealogy, and it's a genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Someone emailed from one of the other congregations last week and said, I don't know why we make all this fuss about Jesus being a Jew. Jesus, the son of God, isn't that enough? No, no. Because Jesus promised that he would use Abraham's family to bless the world. And so God's got a dilemma. Either God's going to say, you know what, we're not going to save the world. The world is too far gone. But then you could accuse God and say, you're unfaithful to your creation. Or God will say, all right, fine, I will save the world, but we're not going to use Abraham's family anymore. But then someone could say, but God, then you're unfaithful to your promise. So either he's going to be unfaithful to the world his creation, or to his promise to Abraham. And God says, I got one better for you. The Son of God is going to come as the seed of Abraham and fulfill the calling of Israel in the way that Israel could never do. And Jesus is the true vine. And Jesus is the true light of the world. And Jesus is the true one who opens up blessing to all of the world. It is Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, that saves us who have faith in him. And then he says, in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We heard that. But all are treated as righteous freely by his grace. Now, if we just stop there, you'd say, now, hang on. Okay, God, fine. You got yourself out of that little pickle where you could have been accused of being unfaithful. But if you're just going to justify sinners, then we're going to go ahead and call you unjust. Because you can't just call people who are sick, not sick, right? Then you'll be like the doctor that says, ah, the bone, broken, not broken. Yeah, let's just call it not broken. You're like, God, you can't just do that. You can't just give out grace. He says, no, that's right. That's right. But it's freely by his grace because of a ransom. We heard our gospel reading this morning where Jesus says the son of man came to give his life as a ransom. Because of a ransom that was paid by Jesus Christ through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus, and here's the phrase I want you to underline, as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. The place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. Now, some of your translations don't say all that. Some of your translations just say this really big word, propitiation, right? Any of you heard the word propitiation? Have you used it recently? Probably not. Okay. Okay. The Greek word for propitiation is this word, hilasterion. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated in Greek by the time of Jesus. And so everyone in Jesus' day who was reading the Old Testament likely was reading it in Greek. And there's this story in Leviticus. 
We heard it in our Old Testament reading this morning. The story of what they're supposed to do on one day of the year. The people of Israel would come on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And they would take two, the priest would take two goats. And on one goat, he would say, on you are all the sins of Israel. Now go. And the goat would be, the goat would be led out into the wilderness. Literally, that's what a scapegoat is. That's where it comes from. And so it was to symbolize that as far as the east is from the west, our sins have been removed. But then the other goat, the priest would lay his hands on and say, okay, on you are the sins of Israel. And then they would slaughter that goat. And then they would take the blood and they would bring it to this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that word mercy seat, when it's translated into Greek, is that same word, hilasterion. Jesus is the mercy seat. You say, well, now hang on a minute. What's the mercy seat? Okay, okay, you want to know? Inside the box, this ark, the inside the box was the law. The law. In other words, God's saying the law has a role. It reveals the glory of God. But the law is not the thing that we worship because the law can't save us. So we need the law, but we're going to put the law in the box. And then we're going to cover it with this seat that we call the mercy seat. And then we need the blood of the sacrifice here to remind us that, the, that there's ransom, there's a redemption necessary because what sin does is it kills us. Just like the disease and the infection kills us. And so we're going to have this blood sprinkled to say that something's going to die to show what sin does, but it's going to cover the mercy seat. And this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, oh my goodness, Thanks be to God who has revealed this to me. And Paul says, I get it. I see it now. Jesus is the blood. With his own blood, he took the poison of the disease on himself, took it all the way down to death, death on a cross, and sprinkled his own blood. And then Jesus himself is the mercy seat so that when we approach God, we're not looking at the law. We're not standing under the law. We're beholding Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice, and Jesus is the mercy seats. And it gets better than that. Exodus 25 says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and on the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. That's the law. And there I will meet you from above the mercy seat. The mercy seat is also the meeting place. Do you see this church? Jesus is the blood that carried the full weight of our sins all the way to death. Jesus is the mercy seat that covers over all of our infection and shortcoming. And now because of Jesus, this is the place of meeting. We get to meet with God. We get to meet with God. Not as ones who are about to be judged, but as ones who have found mercy. Now, all of the things we said earlier, all of the things we said about sin, being us misdiagnosing ourselves and sin having a deeper, us being complicit and, and, and sort of caught up with communal and structural sins, all of those things, they begin to be undone when we come to Jesus. And all of a sudden we say to Jesus, dear God, have mercy. And he says, I already have. And we say, dear God, please forgive me. This has already been provided for. And then we're covered 
and we're cleansed. And then we become agents of the cure. And that's why we take this vertical reconciliation and we become ministers of horizontal reconciliation. And we say the same way that I have found mercy, I'm going to go and give mercy. I'm going to find places that are in pain, people that are on the margins, people that are suffering. I'm going to, I'm going to find ways of bringing healing where everything else is sick. The same way that I have been cured, I'm going to carry the cure to those around me. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus has taken it, taken the poison, given us the cure. And now Jesus is the place where we meet God. Would you bow your head this morning?